You're listening to SAS Nordic, the sassiest podcast in the Nordics. Hi, I'm Daniel. And I'm Thomas. And we are experienced SaaS professionals that are curious about how other successful SaaS companies go to market, scale, build winning teams and great products. Join us on our journey as we speak to Nordic SaaS leaders trying to get hold of their secret sauce. And today's guest is Mats Klar, the CEO at VDoc. Going for an MVP that hasn't been uh, thoroughly tested and field vetted, that could be uh, have a really negative pushback on, on your you know, credibility and, and, and trust. And, and trust is obviously the number one uh, thing here, here to have in the industry. Hello there and welcome to another episode of the SAS Nordic Podcast. I hope you are well today and thank you for spending some time with us for the next half hour or so. And hi Daniel, nice to see you again. Nice to see you again. I think the big question is like, how are you? I know you guys have been <laughs> without any heat and any warm water for a few days, right? Yeah, so... Sorry for laughing, but it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, super hilarious. So our heating system hasn't worked since for a year or something like that. <laughs> I, I, I know it was broken last winter. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, but it when, when it became colder in November, we started to actively try to get it fixed again. And now they basically broke down the whole system, took it back. It was just a hole, no water, nothing, no heat water at least. And now they say that it's done, but I don't know it yet. Man, the neighbors must be excited to not having you go over there to take showers. And stuff. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, my uh, mother-in-law lives across the street here. So my three teenage daughters can go there and take a shower. Yeah, now I'm happy for you, buddy, that you now have a heating system that works and hopefully and, and warm water. What more can you ask for? Uh, a fantastic event. Exactly. Which is just around the quarter. How do you feel? Like counting the days now? I think it's around 10 days or 12, 12 days until the, the Celsius 2023. And of course, it uh, happens so much uh, the whole time we were trying to, to tie the knots together but I mean it's looking really great um, super excited for all the interests from both um, people that are, are coming from all over the world um, actually people traveling from everything from India to Israel and, and the US and then of course you know uh, there is a, a really strong Nordic presence and uh, excited to meet the, the SAS community again yeah, definitely. I mean, it's going to be lots of fun and we've seen the action, we've we felt the vibe and energy in the social channels and which, which leads me to also highlight here again that you know that this is an event where you're going to listen and learn, you know, from the sessions, but it's also a great opportunity to network and we're using the Brella app. You should have received access to it. If you haven't already, go ahead, check your email, log into Brella, start connecting, start networking, start booking those one-to-one -one meetings. In the deal room. And also, I think you should know that this is a premium event, unlike some others. So you will get breakfast, you will get lunch, warm food, you will get dinner, you will get drink tickets, we will have a party in the evening, all in the same venue. So uh, we will really take care of you for a few days. And there is also some exciting side events that you can participate in. Uh, we have the paddle tournament on the day before. Um, a mix of squash and tennis in the cage, if you're not familiar with it. And we end off with a poker tournament at the Malmö Casino after the event. And then uh, for the healthy ones, we have a morning run and a yoga session on day two the morning. And I know also that we have a lot of partners that are organizing drinks and so around the event. Uh, so um, yeah, it's going to be 
plentiful. It's going to be a blast. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. All right. But anyway, enough about the event. Let's dig into this episode, Thomas, right? Absolutely. We'll go west, we'll go east, and we'll go global. Here we go. Today, we are really happy to welcome Mats Klar, the CEO at VDoc, as a guest here in the SAS Nordic podcast. So welcome, Mats. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here, and we appreciate you taking the time to, to join us. I, I know in, in some of the prep calls, you said that you had some uh, heavy cleaning to do. So uh, I, I don't know what the appropriate English word for this is, but, you know, cleaning out the house. Is, is, that, is that fair to say? Well, yes. What I actually said, it was death cleaning, something you do <laughs> before you die. But it's uh, because it's a massive cleaning. My, my, my youngest daughter is graduating in June. So uh, we need to prepare the house for that. And it, it's going to take a few weekends, not like an afternoon or something like that. Right. But you're, you're healthy. You're, like, you're, not, you're not leaving us. Please define healthy. <laughs> <laughs> All right. But uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself, Mats. Who are you? Well, um, well, born and raised in Uppsala. Uh, I basically never left the town. I've uh, been working in Stockholm for a number of years and commuting, but I also studied at the university, like an engineering physics program and started my career as a software developer. Uh, this was back in uh, mid 90s. Uh, so I started using tools like C and C++. Uh, but after a few years, I mean, I think I thought it was really fun, I would say, but um. I could see the passion in, in my colleagues. I mean, they did programming in the evenings, weekends, every fika break, every lunch break. There was talk about programming and new tools, platforms, uh, libraries, etc. And uh, and then when the dot-com um, death in the beginning of 2000, uh, we we uh, we needed someone doing sales. We we didn't have any salesperson. I was working for a IT a IT consultancy company and. And I just said, well, why not? So uh, <laughs> I started doing sales um, just when the, the dot-com death uh, hit us. And, and that was a tough challenge, I would say, because um, cold calling companies searching for consultancy gigs was not easy at that time. So it was a kind of a tough start, I would say. Can be good to have some rough times behind you, right? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, I learned a lot, so to say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. I'm I'm curious, like, what's the first thing you built? Like when you program, what, what is the first thing that you spit out? What's the first product? The first, I did actually first, uh, first year at uh, Cap, Capgemini. And uh, mm -hmm. the, the main product there was developing a, uh, I was a consultant for Tumba Bruk. Uh, mm -hmm. They, um, uh, they produce all the Swedish cash and they also destruct the Swedish cash. And as a side gig, they also produce uh, like lottery tickets for uh, the Swedish market. So mm. uh, my job was to, I mean, then you first you generate uh, all the, the lotteries um, and all the, you know, uh, the wins, so to say. Um, but someone needs to make a control problem to make sure afterwards that this uh, distribution is uh, uh, have enough you know, wins and losses and so to say, and and also are distributed uh, distributed according to a model. So I did a kind of program for, for checking out, uh, validating this uh, batch, so to say. All right. Okay. So you, you learned the odds uh, of winning early then. <laughs> <laughs> well, I learned that... Uh, 
if you want to get rich, don't bet your money on lottery. That's what I learned. <laughs> no, <laughs> exactly. So uh, running a SaaS company is probably a, a better opportunity then. So why don't you tell us a little bit about VDoc and what you guys do? Absolutely. Um, VDoc uh, is obviously a SaaS company uh, working within in the life science industry. But before I talk about the company, I, um, was, uh, we are working basically with organization uh, conducting clinical trials. Uh, but um, just to start, I mean, um, I want to give you a few words about the, the domain, so to say. I mean, it's mainly uh, pharmaceutical companies developing new drugs. And uh, we have a platform for collecting study data in a, in a very safe and efficient way. That's basically what we do. And uh, the difference between us and the competition is, I mean, we, obviously we have a super modern platform. So using our platform will make the drug development quicker and cheaper. And in the end, uh, there will be uh, new medicine quicker to the market and also cheaper because the, um, the cost of developing new drugs today is increasing quite quite a lot and uh, if, if we continue with this trend uh, regular people will not afford buying the drugs they need basically so we are uh, that's why we make a change i would say we make it more efficient but i mean we are a, a one small player in a, in a huge machinery i would i would of course like to say and, and you've been around for quite a while right 20 years or something like that yeah that's that's uh, what i was about to say i mean but what's not communicated so much in, in media is uh, that basically all pharmaceutical companies, they outsource the clinical trials. Clinical trials is when you try try new drugs on humans. That's kind of the definition. So they outsource um, clinical trials to consultancy companies called CROs, uh, contract research organizations, uh, like nine out of 10 uh, cases. So that's, that's um, one of our kind of client as, along with the, the pharma companies. So we started 20 years ago as a CRO, as a consultancy company. Uh, so we, we come from the domain, from the operations side. But in the early years, we actually started to develop our own EDC platform, only for internal purposes, uh, to be more efficient. But this, uh, this uh, the first product we developed was uh, very good. It was actually one guy, uh, one programmer, and one uh, designer. Uh, so after a few years, uh, we decided to, to tweak the software and start to sell and promote it externally. And uh, that's when we kind of took off, so to say. So this was back in 2004 when we launched the first version of, 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 of uh, VDoc. And uh, when did you come on board? Uh, I joined the company in um, 2015. Uh, and I'm Really happy about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've been there a while now. It's eight years. Yeah, it's... I mean, yes, that's uh, so. I've been super lucky because it's been a fantastic journey. I, I joined the company as uh, being responsible for sales and marketing, but then after like three or four months, uh, the previous CEO he resigned, and I got a very very quick uh, promotion, uh, so to say. And I'm still a little bit surprised uh, that I, I'm still still around. I mean, <laughs> when will they, you know, uh, see that I'm uh, like only an imposter doing the job here? But uh, but I've been around since 2015, and um, yeah, eight years in the job, you must be doing some things right. Yeah, the numbers look quite good, so some something right, absolutely. All right. And, and how has the company developed since since you started? How's the journey been? Well. Um, we um, just before I joined the company, I think it was around 2012. Uh, the, the previous product uh, was quite good, and we can see the potential uh, with it, but it also had some limitations. So 
there was a decision then to rebuild the whole platform from scratch. And I think we actually, we are the only company in our domain who's done it. Uh, so the, the second generation was launched the year before I joined the company. Um, and um, so the product transition was uh, a tough one, I would say, because the, the new second generation didn't have all the features and functions as the previous platform had. Mm. Uh, so, but my job when I joined was obviously to sell and promote the the new uh, the second generation because uh, the previous. I mean, we saw some limitation, and that's that's so, that's a, like a big challenge in our industry because the contract we sign clinical trials could be like 10, 15 years. Um, so we need to guarantee uh, an availability of the platform for for uh, quite a long time, so to say. Yeah. Right. Might have been quite good for you not coming in with that legacy. Uh, you could start fresh and, and you know, focus on the second generation. You're absolutely right. However, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sure you're very experienced in, in hearing about and, and um, you know product transitions. I mean, um, uh, in in the first years, we uh, we heard a lot. Uh, of um, concerns and maybe you could also say like uh, complaints about the new uh, generation that we had didn't have all the functional features so that was uh, it had an impact on on the sales um, uh, for uh, in, in the beginning so we were a little bit slow when i joined uh, but then later on it picked up uh, very well i guess no one is asking about the old platform <laughs> now right no no absolutely not we <laughs> we we closed down the sales uh, in end of 2017 uh, so it, it was a while ago but we, it's still alive actually so um, okay yeah yeah once again lo- long time uh, commitment about availability so uh, but it's it's going to be the the commission but i mean obviously we need to take care of all ongoing projects and, and uh, make a nice exit there okay so you, so you might have a a merger of customers ahead of you as well. Everybody that sits on the old platform needs to move on to the new one. I, I, I don't. I think it's going to be a few. I would say, but most of, of um, the the clinical trials uh, using the old platform is is will come to an end. Uh, but there will be some some migrations um, transferred to the new platform. Awesome. Hey, I was a little bit curious. You, you mentioned obviously the big pharma companies and then the CROs. So. Uh, who do you actually sign the deal with, you know, and, and who uses the platform? Do you sign the deals with the CRO or is it Astra that buys the platform and then they allow their CRO to also leverage it? We, uh, we actually, looking at, uh, we have about 400 clients, a little bit spread all, all over the world and, and uh, about half of them are CROs mm-hmm. and about half of them are so-called, what we say, sponsors. That's actually not only pharma, but also biotech companies, uh, medical device companies, other organizations doing clinical trials as well. So it's a 50-50 split. Uh, and um, in, in many cases, especially if you look at the small mid-sized market, uh, many of the, the small mid-sized pharma and biotechs, um, when they outsource a clinical trial, they ask the CRO to provide them also with all digital tools, so to say. Right. While uh, the, the big pharma, they usually want to be in, in full control of, of all the study data because that's kind of the, the core data you use when, when uh, submitting for an approval uh, later on. So um, so it's, it's a blend, I would say. All right. So you mentioned you had around 400 customers. So what else can you tell us about the size of the operation? How, how big an ARR do you have? How much are you growing? Number of employees and such? 
Yeah, it depends how many years we want to look back. I mean, when I joined the company, we were about a little bit more than 20 employees. And uh, today we are about 120 employees. Okay. And um, press having offices in Japan, China, uh, Vietnam, uh, and also in the US today. And that's that's the, the biggest markets. We have APAC, uh, EMEA, and, and North America. Um, from a ARR perspective, uh, I think that's been a pretty good development. I think we increased it. Uh, from like 50 million to 150 million the last three years. So we uh, doubled it, tripled it in three years. Are we talking Swedish krona? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, Swedish Swedish crowns. Good point. All right. So uh, yeah, a little bit less than, than maybe 40 million euros or, or something like that, then, if we translate. All right, cool. Uh, and how have you been funded uh, during this uh, journey and, and how are you owned today? When I joined the company, there was uh, five individuals owning the company. Um, and um, so my assignment was basically at that point to, to reinvest any, any, any profit in the company, uh, in the product and uh, in, in more people. And then in 2019, we were acquired by uh, a Stockholm-based private equity company, uh, Montero. How much do they own? Uh, a majority stake of the company, and and uh, and uh, but it's also a number of uh, the employees are also uh, small small owners in in the company as well. Okay, you also have a stake there, I presume. I, I do, yes. Okay, Thomas, you, you like you, you got to go all the way with it. A ask him. Ask yeah, him. Yeah, how ask much? Him. How much do you have? <laughs> uh, I, I don't remember to, to be. A <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's. Um, I think that's a good thing actually uh, to have a, a partner. Yeah, possibly owning the, the majority of the company, but also employees have the opportunity to have be part of of, uh, you know, of the company. I mean, sitting in the same boat, I think that's that's a good thing. Uh, so this was about uh, three and a half years ago, and, and um, interesting here that I mean, when when they did their due diligence, they they were a little bit amazed about the growth uh, we had in the years, and also you know, we were profitable. Uh, but what surprised them that we, we didn't have any sales and marketing department at that uh, at that point. Uh, because you became the CEO, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I was also like uh, the interim sales and marketing manager as well uh, on the side. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we had a limited budget uh, at then, and, but now, I mean, uh, we've, we've been quite good at, at with the sales. So... And, but they also noticed that I mean you don't uh, you don't have any any presence in the U.S. No, so that's was like kind of their recommendation. Well, maybe you should establish a sales and marketing department, and maybe you should go to the U.S. and uh, and also I mean you have a fantastic product, but obviously we uh, you could uh, improve that one as well. So that's that's something we've done the last three years. We have established a really good sales and marketing department. We uh, did go to the U.S. in 2020, and um, we've also you know, uh, invested a lot in, in, in the product development. Uh, we got some support from Ontario, also establishing uh, a um, development site in, in Hanoi, in Vietnam. So that there we have two teams today. Okay. It sounds almost too easy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's, uh, I think we have uh, worked uh, quite hard, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see, we're going to dig into it. In, uh, well, actually, why don't we dig into it right away here? So, um, obviously, you serve customers globally, you know, across these three main regions of yours. And you're also in a highly regulated space, I presume now. And what, what we talked a little bit, you know, as we were preparing this is about in the speed and pace as to how you push out 
new offerings, new products, and how you control the narrative across different regions. You know, in, in our world, the standard has been almost like MVP. You got to sell before you have a product. Tell the world that you have something and then hopefully somebody will buy it and then you go ahead and build it and figure it out. But that might not always be applicable in all scenarios. And we're curious a little bit, like in your space, in your world, how do you actually push out products and when do you communicate about them? Yeah, that's that's a really interesting topic. Um, I mean, first of all, um, yes, the pharmaceutical industry is very regulated, uh, similar to the financial industry with banks, I would say. Uh, so, and, and also just to give you a glimpse on... on, on on the industry as well. I mean, in, in average, it takes about 10 years to to uh, get the new drug approved. So it's a long timeline. And, and the if you read different studies, uh, I mean, the, the, the cost for developing a new drug today is somewhere between one and three billion dollars. So it's a lot of money involved. And, and uh, the last phase in, in testing it could be like five years. So nothing can go wrong. So uh, that's kind of the... Uh, the way it has to be done. So going for an MVP that hasn't been uh, thoroughly tested and field vetted, that, that could be uh, have a really negative pushback on, on your you know, credibility and, and, and trust. And, and trust is obviously number one uh, thing here to have in the industry. So it's, it's a fine balance. I mean, um, and also being a global company, uh, there are different cultures. Um, I mean, in, in in Sweden, I would say we um, somewhat have a culture of, of uh, you know, we want to develop and we want to test it first and, and uh, ideally to have some kind of pilot and then go to market and announce it. Right. But that's not uh, maybe a, a perfect strategy if you compete uh, with the US, uh, who are a little bit more aggressive. So, um, and also some other regions where we're present are, are more conservative. Uh, so then you have a... You have a challenge. I mean, if you want to go out with a press release or a communication about a new product, uh, whether it's an MVP or a full-blown product, uh, I mean, it's, it makes sense to do it uh, globally, right? But then maybe it's a little bit premature for one market uh, and, and a good thing for the other market. So this is something we would have we have to balance uh, on a daily basis. Well, we don't release new products every day, obviously, but um, but this is a balance that you you need to. Uh, yeah, think before before you act. I would say, um, and uh, sometimes we've been too early, and sometimes we we've been a bit slow as well. How often do you do releases? Well, that's that's actually been one of our success factors. I would say, um, since as we did the second generation, we uh, we tried to make a, a super scalable architecture and use standardized uh, technology uh, because of also. This is a marathon race. So we've been very successful in, in delivering new releases. And we've done it in the past about every six to eight weeks. Uh, and this may not seem uh, impressive, but in, in our industry, when the competition, they maybe do a new release every once a year. Um, mm. But also, I mean, chasing the, the big dragons on the market, the market leaders, I mean, um, that's uh, like, uh, that's that's something you have to do if you want to, catch up and because if we want to beat the, the market leaders i think we need to to, to be best um, beat them in, in every discipline in terms of the speed flexibility uh, quality uh, price you know all, all different you know evaluation areas so to say right uh, 
Um, today we have a much larger like, code base, so it's, uh, today it's a little bit less than every six to eight weeks, uh, but still we are very productive. So let's say every second month uh, something uh, we release. Right. Are you still on the second generation or are you on the third or fourth? We, we, are, we are still on the second. Yeah. Because sometimes the third one is somewhere around the corner, right? Could be, <laughs> could be. But uh, no, to be honest, we, we don't have, it, uh, have a third generation on the roadmap right now. I mean, we have been quite good at also improving the technology uh, in terms of yeah, going from .NET framework to .NET 6 and, and uh, those kind of updates uh, to maintain uh, like a future-proof platform, uh, if such thing exists, of course. Okay. So, Mats, I'm curious also based on what you said here in, in, in your opening statement uh, of the section of the, of the interview. Um, what have you figured out or realized that at what maturity level of your product, when is it ready to push in Europe versus the US versus maybe Asia? Are there any differences there? Well, we haven't done it so far. Uh, once we have done releases, we have launched it in, uh, in all regions at the same time. Uh, and also to mention, I mean, uh, having a, the, the platform we have, uh, we only have like one current version. Uh, on all production servers, that's important to mention. So mm -hmm. every time when we do new releases, we push up the same version on all uh, instances uh, all over the world. So it's we don't. However, uh, because of the conservative some thing, you can't change a software uh, however you like in a clinical trial because that could be a violation uh, to the regulatory. So every every new feature or function or product we add, uh, it's added. Uh, so you can you can choose as a client to opt in or, or just uh, it's not like as default it's not used uh, when we do new releases right so that's that's something um, we've done uh, but the, in, in terms of communication we've, we're using the same communication as of today so you mentioned that some of these trials they they went for like 10 years or something yeah that's correct so do they still sign up for a monthly subscription fee or do they you know sign up for it at 10 year reoccurring <laughs> subscription yeah exactly so that the business model we have is is the latter we um uh, the licenses they sign up for is like on, on a product basis okay uh, so you, you know the duration of a clinical trial and that's uh that's what you sign up for then we also have uh, like enterprise agreements but we don't have like a pure subscription uh, model as of today all right PR and communication are the keys to building awareness for your company. You want to make sure you reach the right people with the right message at the right time. My Newsdesk is a smart PR platform where you can manage all your communication efforts in one place. My Newsdesk makes it easier for companies of all sizes to create awareness and build relations with the people that matter the most to you. Don't make PR harder than it needs to be. Visit mynewsdesk.com to start your free trial. I'm also curious, you know, I can't let go of this a little bit. I, I'm, I, very few companies that we've spoken to and had on the podcast here have any operations in Asia. They, they might have, you know, sold a license in the US and in Europe with some users being physically located in Asia. But it's like... How is it doing software deals in, in Japan or China, wherever you guys are making them? Is, is there any difference compared to 
the Western world, so to say? Well, when we talk about APAC, I mean, obviously that also includes uh, the Pacific, Australia. And Australia is more like uh, yeah, Europe and the US, I would say. But the difference between Japan and China is also like kind of huge. Um, when we entered the Japanese market, this was back in 2009, uh, we had some of the some of the colleagues had had some working experience uh, with Japan, so he knew the culture. He um, just went over there, and we took some help from Business Sweden, uh, setting up a small office in their uh, uh, co-working space. And uh, with some hard work and some luck, we uh, we actually managed to convince one of the key opinion leaders in Japan within the clinical trials within within the academia world. So he started to promote VDoc in Japan. And the threshold of entering the Japanese market is quite high because they are a little bit suspicious to oversee people, so to say. Uh, but I think the Japanese market, they really like the Swedish design and also the Swedish quality. So uh, we had a really early success there. And then we started to employ uh, native Japanese uh, colleagues, obviously, and uh, had a legal entity in Japan, I, I think. And also the Swedish guy uh, with the spear experience, he traveled to Japan uh, six times a year, stayed there for like two or three weeks uh, in every time we went there. So kind of building uh, the, um, the the Swedish culture into the Japanese office, uh, or at least you know, um, trying to explain uh, how, how Swedes operate, uh, so to say. And, and I think that's the culture difference is, is, uh, is yeah, that's something you need to take uh, into consideration, I would say. Um, yeah. While as the Chinese market is a totally different story. They are... Tell us, tell us. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Japan, you are like super thorough. Uh, you don't want to make any mistakes. In China, uh, it's much more uh, trial and error, test, go. Uh, they're much quicker. Uh, but, I mean, you have other challenges uh, in terms of... Uh, competition and, and pricing and and, uh, uh, and also now uh, there has been most changes in, in in terms of regulations in China both for um, within clinical trial but also from a data privacy perspective yeah. uh, so that's and we need to be compliant with all the regulatory and all the data privacy laws at all times so that's uh, that's also a challenge and if you have employees in the country it's kind of easier uh, to understand how regulations are interpreted, for instance. Um, yeah. And also uh, from a business perspective, I mean, in China, uh, it's much more common to negotiate price, uh, push for rebates and stuff like that. Right. Um, and you need to know how to play the game to be successful in sales. Yeah. Do you have servers in China just for your Chinese customers? Yes, we do. And that has been also a super important thing due to Chinese regulations. Yeah. Chinese personal data cannot leave China. And the other question here, you mentioned that you deploy uh, your solution across uh, globally the same version. Um, have you figured a way to, to do that to the, the Chinese instance as well? Or do you have to manage that deployment in another way? No, we do it. We use Microsoft Azure for all our instances. And they have also presence in China through, uh, you know, partners. Uh, so we have a Microsoft Azure instance in, in China. Okay, so on, uh, from a technological level, it's not uh, a big uh, uh, problem nope. doing it. Okay, cool. Thomas, times have changed since you and I tried to do this. Like, uh, <laughs> much for your information, the backstory is that we landed a big customer uh, when, when Thomas and I had real jobs, a uh, global customer in the fashion industry that had a big operation in China with a lot of staff in China. 
And at that time, this was many years ago now, we couldn't, to save our lives, set up an instance over there. Um, and obviously, as you can imagine, that like the, the, the Chinese colleagues pinging some some server somewhere in, in Frankfurt or, or Dublin, Ireland, wherever it was, wasn't ideal. So clearly there's been pro- progress since you and I did this, Thomas. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> I mean, just to clarify, I mean, from a technology perspective, it's... Uh let's say it's not a problem but they have also other regulations um i mean as you may know they 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 limit access to some websites and and um it's not easy to use vpns from china and and, uh, you need approval from the chinese authorities to have a a website in china and uh, so it's uh but from a technology perspective not not the big difference yeah so i was also curious a little bit about um the platform have you done any specific changes to the pl- the software itself to tailor better to Japan and China, maybe in this case? And the first thing that pops in my mind, like, you know, did you have to localize, you know, the interface to Japanese and Mandarin and so on? Uh, the easy answer is no. We have the same uh, platform on all instances. and um, But obviously, we, we support a number of different languages. Uh, so that's that's what we do. And... Uh, I mean, we. Um, I mean, we want scalability is like a key thing in, in our business. Uh, so we, uh, every time you make uh, something tailor-made here and there, it's going to be more complex, obviously. But do you translate the UI to Japanese and Chinese, for instance? Absolutely. Okay. So for each new feature that you release, you need to have a process that makes sure that, uh, yeah the 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 buttons and the options are translated then and the error message and all, all kinds of stuff is in that local language only buttons not error message no i'm <laughs> just kidding oh, yes of course we translate everything in the platform uh, to the language languages we support yeah and does that also go i guess then uh for you know any documentation manuals sdks whatever technical documentation is that also localized uh, to some extent but the, the core documentation we have uh, in form like a, of an e-learning is is uh, mainly in english but we also uh have it in let's see i should know this by heart of course uh, in 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 japanese and chinese but i think we don't have it in spanish we have many different system languages. Uh, we also support like French, German, uh, Spanish, etc. But uh, the the e-learning is uh, primarily in, in English, but also um, Chinese and Japanese. Yeah, I mean, it's very exciting. It's like I think it's a nice contrast to what we normally hear. Is like you have a half-baked product, push it out as fast as you can, and then hope for the best. Like when people sign, you'll figure it out later. But in, in, in some worlds that, you know, if you push a half-baked product, I guess, in your world, people will eventually find out and then you're out of the project for the next 10 years. Yeah. It almost sounds like that. Yeah, it is <laughs> exactly like LOR. It could be like that. I mean, it's a, it's a very niche industry. So if right. uh, everybody knows everybody. So if we would make mistakes, there would be any, any big problems, uh, people would hear about it. And uh, so we, we, we cannot afford that. Uh, so everything we release is thoroughly tested and also considering that we push out the same version on all servers that will also have an impact on all ongoing projects or clinical trials. So uh, we need to really make sure that we have a solid backward compatibility uh, in every release we do. So uh, something I know that you are passionate about is the environmental, social and governance um, perspectives or dimensions of this. So maybe you want to say a few words around that. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, personally, I think this is super important. Uh, but uh, I don't initiate project that I, you know, have a personal interest in. Obviously, uh, company first. We do that sometimes, but we're only two here, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, but um, uh, we uh, today. Once again, uh, taking risk in this industry is something you want to avoid. So any new client that would sign up with us, they uh, assess us uh, quite thoroughly. Uh, so usually uh, there is one or two with maybe three, four demos we do. And um, if we pass that test, uh, the next stage would be to respond to an RFI. Uh, usually there's an Excel document with hundreds and hundreds of questions uh, in all different uh, areas about the product, about the processes we use, about financial information security, and, and also uh, around uh, ESG or sustainability. Uh, and we respond roughly to um, like 50 RFIs every year. Uh, with the, Of course, it's growing this number. And the trend we've seen the last years is uh, the, the section around ESG is increasing day by day. Uh, this is getting more important. And bigger companies, I mean, they are obliged to have a transparent reporting uh, when it comes to you know uh, carbon footprint and other aspects so from from a business perspective i think this is this is super important for us to not only have like fluffy words around it to actually do something make a difference i mean we are making a difference today providing a platform that could facilitate quicker and, and cheaper and more safe uh, drug development but i mean so but this is something we are uh, spending a lot of time on. And um, right now we are looking into, first of all, uh, be very transparent about some metrics, KPIs. Um, and what are those key metrics that you want to be transparent around? Well, one common key metric is obviously uh, the carbon footprint. Yeah. Uh, so we are looking into uh, what's the, the biggest five contributors we have in our industry. And obviously it's uh, the, the office and the um, Microsoft instances and it's the, the devices, the computers and phones we're using and travel. And um, so we're looking into the, you know, um, the biggest contributors here and um, and also from an equality perspective, uh, being transparent about the, the gender distribution in, in the company, in the board, uh, uh, and in the management team. So that, those are some examples that we will, uh, you know, uh, publish uh, both internally and also for other interested parties like uh, the board and, and uh, owners of the company. And then uh, as a second project this year is actually to provide uh, free licenses for organization without any budgets. Um, this could be like, uh, you know, development countries, for instance, it could also be therapeutic areas where uh, there, you already have good medicines uh, that doesn't get any good funding. I mean, so uh, we might as well give out licenses for free here. Uh, so this is something we will do as an extra contribution, uh, uh, so to say. All right. But I'm curious, Matt, so like when, when you answer these uh, RFIs or RFPs, like do you think that, I get it, like if somebody says you need to be SOC 2 certified and if you can't check that box, that's an issue. But when they say, like, we want to know about your carbon footprint, yeah. like, are there usually levels and thresholds that say, like, if you're above this level, that's, that's a red flag for us? Now, it, it was a while ago since I personally actually responded to these RFIs, uh, but I don't think they've been that detailed. It's more on high level so far. But right. looking at upcoming regulations within the oil industries, uh, this will be more common. And, and um, mm. it's more like, um, uh, what do you actually do? And how do you do it? Um, 
but the, the number of, of questions and the granularity is, is increasing, I would say. Mm, yeah. yeah, and I guess that uh, they want to, to supply policies for, for these things, so they at least see that you're working with these areas, I guess. Absolutely, and also from, from a business perspective, once again, that's uh, I mean super important for us. I, I also believe looking at the, uh, the younger generations, uh, that you actually make a difference, will make it easier for us to recruit, and we are still growing very fast and, and also to retain people. Uh, I think uh, the ones we have working for VDOC today, I, I many of them, I mean, they want to work for a company making a difference. Uh, right. And that that's a good way to, to demonstrate uh, not only externally, but also internally. All right. Right. It's a, it's a way to profile yourself as well, like, you know, to position yourself for the new labor force here. But I'm also curious, um, we've seen that a little bit uh, as a trend. Uh, that this ESG topic is obviously a big topic and the, the more, the greater the companies in terms of size, the bigger emphasis on this. But one topic that has come up is who owns this exercise? Do you have a, a, an ESG manager over there? Is there somebody that's head of this exercise or is, does that sit with you? First of all, I'd say um, uh, for many years, we've also, uh, we've done like ad hoc campaigns. I mean, during the COVID, we actually gave out free licenses for all organizations searching for a COVID-19 vaccine. And we've donated money to charity, but, but more like an ad hoc basis, so to say. Uh, but beginning of last year, we that's when we first formed like an ESG team eternally. And then I, I we had a, like a, anyone could apply to participate in this team. And we had some objectives and um, to start it up basically. And We've done the same thing for for this year. It's got like a, be a, an annual project team. So now we have, I think it's five people in the team, and, and all of the five person actually do have uh, previous experience uh, in, in this area from the university or previous employments uh, or, or stuff like that. So they have been uh, given a, a budget. We have a you know separate budget for this in the company, and uh, they've also been allowed to spend. Uh, oh, it was me who made the decision. Was it like? Uh, 10% of the time or maybe 10 hours a week, uh, I think it was 10% of the time uh, on a, uh, to spend time on, on this project. So it's, uh, uh, yeah, so we can plan for it also. Okay. Right. Cool. Let's hope they don't, they don't go like to uh, a kickoff to Marbella. They fly somewhere yeah. to have a kickoff <laughs> to talk about this. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. So uh, looking into the future here, the next few years uh, for VDOC, um, what, uh, yeah, what plans do you have? Not releasing the third generation of the product, but uh, something else, I guess. Obviously, I, I so much believe in our product that we are making a difference. And uh, uh, I mean, growing and climbing, continue to climb in the ecosystem. Uh, that's what we're aiming for, obviously. Is that why you're staying with the company so long? Because you, you really feel that you can make a difference uh, Working with VDoc. Yeah, I mean, for me, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, you have also been have some experience in sales. If you don't believe in your own product, uh, you're not a good salesperson. Mm. Uh, I, I truly believe we are making a huge difference, and, and as long as I feel that, uh, I, I, I want to continue with this journey and uh, win the big, uh, yeah, big deals with the big pharma. I mean, today we are. Our primary market is still kind of made a small mid-sized market, even though uh, we just won a big pharma last year. Uh, so we are step by step uh, building up trust within the whole industry. And uh, and the upcoming years, I mean, uh, we, we just entered the US, US market like three years ago, but uh, the, the competition there is, is 
immense. Uh, it's super crowded and, and super competitive. Uh, so, but that's also like 50% of the world market. So, um, continue to expand in the US is uh, a key objective for us. Okay, and now you have a lot of uh, talented people within the SaaS community listening. Is there anything you need help with, or that you're looking for right now? Oh, that that's a good. Uh, I think I could need some help in in all areas. Uh, I'm uh, I'm still learning every day, and uh, once again, I'm in. Uh, I mean, this is a, this is a complex industry with the software. Now, I mean, we've had a number of workshops with uh, around uh, OpenAI and ChatGPT. How can that make an impact on on our industry? It's very conservative, but sometimes. A whole industry make like a leap and just okay, let's go for this. Mm. <laughs> uh, but most likely not. So what what's the working thesis? Like, where does ChatGPT play a role here? Well, in in our first quick assessment, I mean, it could actually be applicable in all steps in clinical trials, uh, in all aspects. I mean, it's uh, but you also have a number of you know uh, challenges and and uh, concerns. So uh, I I think uh, around data privacy and and those kind of uh, who's going to be liable for stuff you need validation yeah. uh, but i mean it's it's going to be implemented sooner or later uh, to some extent but the chat gpt uh, ninja perhaps yeah i mean we've started to see i mean job ads with a prompt specialist and stuff like that yeah. so, uh, <laughs> so it, it's coming <laughs> yeah it's coming definitely it's coming really really fast so uh, is there someone that you would like us to get on the show here that would make you excited to listen. I think uh, usually when I talk to people around, I think other uh, other SaaS company having a global business, I think that's usually most interesting because of the challenges of, of different culture, different uh, time zones. Uh, that is, uh, that's always a challenge uh, to build a strong uh, company team spirit, for instance, and build a strong company culture. Um, when you don't meet face to face on a regular basis. Yeah. And is, is there a company that you guys have looked up to or somebody that inspired you guys? Yeah, not really. Maybe we should, uh, but we've been kind of busy just um, developing and uh, launching and, and uh, continue our journey. All right. So somebody that has a global business that has mastered, I don't know if anybody has mastered, the, the global complexity when it comes to, to culture and time differences and running teams and customers across the, the board here. Let's see if we find somebody. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. All right, Mats, this was uh, great. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, in between your death cleaning. Uh, <laughs> much appreciated for, for you coming here, sharing your, your experience, and we hope to see more of you. Thank you very much. All right, Daniel, what was your takeaway from this episode today? I think this is a perfect example that there is not one size fits all. I think I said it a couple of times during the episode, like we're, we're like trained to believe that you got to sell before you have the product, MVP, you know, get the go-to-market motion out there, get the marketing engine out there. But for some, that doesn't make sense. Like in this case, Mats. Mm. And I think there's also other areas of the B2B SaaS space that where we've been trained to believe that there's one way to do it. Mm, maybe not always the case. So I guess my point here is that uh, there's no template. Like every business is unique, every market is unique. There's certain things you can leverage and learn from, from you know, uh, and, and repeat and so on. 
But every business is unique, every opportunity is unique. Be mindful of that. So don't just copy and paste because then you're always going to be behind. That sounded very philosophical. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it was nice. Yeah. What about you, Thomas? Like, what are you taking away from this? You can do stuff in China that we couldn't do uh, seven, eight years ago. Exactly. <laughs> that was my first thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. China, no problem. Uh, just deploy it there on on the Microsoft servers. Um, uh, but uh, well, what stuck me uh, now the last one when he, he spoke about what uh, they are looking for. Uh, Chat GPT and, and and similar services will probably change every company uh, moving forward. The, the AI services. That's just how it's going to be. I mean, when we talked about localization and so on, it was of course we're doing that. Uh, it wasn't like you know the UI in Japanese or China, just you know for all new functionalities that is in place. So uh, if if you are working with these kinds of, of companies if you go global make sure that you build solid processes around that because uh, that will be required right and actually we're going to hear at sassiest uh susan runquist uh, susan amadi runquist from uh, hubspot runquist amadi anyway susan if you if you listen to this you know we love you uh, vp international marketing at hubspot and i think her session is is named uh local, global, or global. But she's going to talk about how they approach essentially the entire world. Uh, either, you know, one way or in different ways. So it's a little bit on the same topic. You should tune in there to learn from their experience, how they've done it, how they approached, you know, I don't know, 50 different markets. Absolutely. And if you want to attend the conference, where do you go to learn more and get your tickets? Sassiest2023.com. And all you need to know about the event is there. Whether you're interested in the agenda, who the speakers are, the side events, where to book your hotel if you haven't done that, everything is there. Yeah. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email to contact at sasnodic.com. You can reach out to me or Daniel on LinkedIn. Uh, we are pretty much, um, you know, online most of the time so looking forward to talk to you and if you have any ideas about future speakers or topics that we should cover in the show let us know uh, if you are a frequent listener on spotify uh, you can actually rate the show if you like it a lot give it five stars if you don't like it a lot you don't need to do this <laughs> that, that is that is okay and uh, what we do know is that the episode is uh, to its end for now and we hope to see you next time take care <laughs>